Welcome to our podcast series. I'm Hazel Stutely, C2 Founder and Program Director. C2 is based on a very simple concept that we discovered back in the 90s, which works as well today as it did back then. We simply bring together the people who work in an area, typically police, health and housing frontline workers, with those people who live there to work together as equals, forming a mutually problem-solving, resident-led partnership with just one goal, to make their community a great place in which to live and work. These partnerships are not only powerful, but they stand the test of time because they are self-renewing, with many still going strong into their second operational decade. In this series, we've captured the inspirational voices of residents and providers separately and together as they tell their stories of how the C2 seven-step pathway to partnerships not only worked for them and their communities, but carries on working with amazing and transformative results. In this episode, you'll hear from Tony Bone and Paul Morgan, two former police officers who are still a part of the C2 family. My involvement is very much on, I suppose, a lot more of that philosophical concept size about how do we fit this into a forces neighbourhood policing. And you have, I think, the practical and really impactive side that comes from what Tony was up to. So there's slightly different approaches, even though it's both police-based. Paul's just prompted me to remember why we started it. So doing it this way is really helpful because it was so long ago that I'm beginning to forget things. But Paul mentioned the differences in the two approaches and mine came from my time in the Violence Reduction Unit, which was a nationwide quasi-police government organisation. Quite a small unit involving police officers, health visitors and taking a public health approach, which is becoming more and more topical. So our remit was to find new and innovative ways to reduce and to try and eradicate violent crime. And I get the opportunity to go down and watch people like Hazel and Paul in action and see for myself how this fantastic initiative worked in practice. And from there, um, I was able to take back a lot of those principles and adapt and apply to a place called Northwest Kilmarnock. And very quickly, we began to realise that there was a lot of traction in this approach because of the idea of community-led transformation, which pretty much amounted to creating a safe space for people to apply their own ideas and practices. And we were able to then reduce our understanding of how to reduce violent crime indoors and outdoors through the back door, if you like. And it then just evolved very, very quickly. So that's how we were introduced to the concept of assets-based approaches through people like Paul and Hazel. And if I could interject now, it was, I suppose, the involvement of myself came because of a responsibility for 
what was in our force anyway, in Devon and Cornwall Police, force was split into sectors and the responsibility for policing each of those sectors was given to a neighbourhood sector inspector. A wonderfully rhyming title, but it coincided as well around 2007-2008 with a national strategy around neighbourhood policing. And it was part of uh, general efforts to sort of codify, I suppose, what forces should be doing with regards to how they organise their local policing teams and how they should hold meetings and how, more importantly for us, was how they were going to be measured. How was the government and the Home Office going to measure what neighbourhood policing was doing? And I'm afraid at the time I was an inspector in the South Hams covering Totnes, Dartmouth sort of areas. And it seemed a particularly sterile approach to me because it was based around the police service being held to account for local policing when local policing relied on a broad based partnership and it relied on members of the community believing you had the legitimacy and we had their consent to police in the first place. So it's a slightly different concept because I was in a way rebelling against some of the constrictions of what were imposed on us for neighbourhood policing. I was covering Dartmouth and I'd heard about what C2 had achieved in Falmouth and what Hazel had achieved down there and how the local police had been involved and thought not only were the communities similar, but they were similar communities, but they were able to, I suppose, reflect some of the same problems, some of the same difficulties. So that's where the involvement started, seeing Hazel and the C2 approach as being a more novel, a more profound way of fulfilling our requirements for neighbourhood policing as well. So it wasn't based around a specific issue. It was based around, for me, what underpins neighbourhood policing and C2 and its approach and its seven steps approach offered to me the opportunity to build a broad-based partnership and not make sure the police were seen as being the only people responsible for local policing. Yeah, that's quite a good point as well, Paul, because when I became involved with the work in Cornwall, the policing in Strathclyde had been through a period of decades where gang violence and knife crime just became the norm. So before that, I'd been working in the CID as a detective for many years and you would just come in at the weekend and you would find a room full of brown paper bags with bloodstained clothing. And that would just be accepted. And that was after a multitude of new acts of parliament, new policing initiatives that were tried and tested, but nothing had actually worked until we took a completely different and radical approach. And that approach emanated from the public health methodology which is all about identifying the source of the issue or the, the contagion that's spreading this negativity among communities. So with the assets-based approach it allowed us to go into the heart of communities and identify people who we would refer to as the catalysts for change and just create an opening for people to breathe and to speak freely and to identify what they regarded as the priorities. So in Northwest Kilmarnock, where we first tried this, local people very quickly identified that the main issue was young children. And mainly they were coming from households where domestic violence prevailed on a daily basis. And the local community identified the first thing that they required was a breakfast club, really, really simple, a breakfast club, and then a homework club, so that young children had somewhere 
that they could regard as a safe environment to play and to work. That then evolved into additional initiatives. For example, drugs was a scourge of that community and there was very many registered drug addicts who lived in that area and they had to make their way into the town centre for their regular counselling and treatment services. We found a way to bring that into the heart of the community and allow their children to get access to these new developing initiatives like the Breakfast Club and the Homework Club. And it just it grew arms and legs very, very quickly. And other agencies became involved. The local Kilmarnock College became involved. The local musical theatre group became involved. And the whole community thrived to the extent where neighbouring communities were looking over the garden fence saying, why are they getting all of this? We want some of this. So that's what I mean when I talk about a positive contagion. It began to spread into neighbouring communities. And I think, Tony, the one thing there that you spoke about that really resonates with me is this catalyst for change idea. Whereas you were responding, I think, to those severe crime issues, the issues that I saw C2 having an opportunity to interact with was actually around the process by which we went about delivering local policing. Because what I had with Townstall in Dartmouth was one of the larger sort of social housing estates, but sat in amongst the bottom of the South Hams is an immensely wealthy area in general. And yet there are pockets where there is social housing, which it doesn't equate to just poverty and vulnerability and the like just because of that. But it was about the service provision on those estates and how that seemed to lag behind the provision elsewhere in many cases. So when I went to Dartmouth, I was faced with a wealthy town with a very influential town council who, from the moment I set foot in Dartmouth, pointed at me and said, you've got to sort that estate out up on the hill. And so being policing, what do we do? We look at all the crime figures, first of all, because we own those as such and can at least get into those. And I saw nothing that gave me any huge concern in the sense of the overall figures. Yes, we had some major players in the regional drugs distribution network, but they did tend to deliver a lot of an issue in that area. There were issues beyond the area they were staying in. People knew about that and felt a bit uncomfortable about that. But actually, the figures didn't indicate an area that was a real crime problem. What I saw was an area that was being used as a scapegoat by those who felt in a way that it was easy to point fingers and divide and blame everything on a particular community. But the important thing, and it's just to pick up on what you said there, Tony, the catalyst for change. What I also saw were individuals writing into the local paper every week, defending their estate, saying about the positives, claiming that they needed to have some support. I saw youth groups already operating on the estate, but without maximum support. The funny thing being, there were two youth groups operating on the estate itself because they worked together originally and had then fallen out. So you ended up with these rival youth groups. So there was no lack of people who were proud of where they lived and wanted to offer their services and be part mm -hmm. of that catalyst for change. But they weren't getting much support or traction from those who had influence, money and the councils. And it was that overlaying with the local policing saying, hang on a minute, if I go in there, why should I chair a meeting? This has to be owned by the people who live there. And C2 offered the opportunity to reverse the way we were being expected to operate, which was chair meetings 
and bring partners together and say, oh, we're all in this together. And I knew it would be the police service that ended up bearing the brunt of all of the criticisms when it needed to be a broad-based partnership. And it was that that really attracted me to Falmouth's approach, building that broad-based partnership before we started any of the listening and any of the building of action plans, etc. Yeah, and what we found very quickly is that the community took charge of the situation. Once they get their head round what it was that we were suggesting, and it's such a simple concept that's very easy to get off the ground, but because communities like the kind of places that we were working in have been used to decades of various projects and initiatives being thrown at them, and as soon as the money runs out, the resources vanish. So the the added advantage of this approach is that you're creating a sustainable legacy because many people that live in these communities are proud of where they live. They want to stay where they live for pretty much the whole of their lives. So when we were in Northwest Kilmarnock, there was some concern from local public agencies because they saw this as a police unit targeting communities in their local authority area. And it was nothing to do with that. It was just an attempt to try and test the concept to see if it actually works. So instead of just relying on police recorded crime, we decided to go further than that. So we looked at statistics from A&E departments and hospitals which gave us an indication that something like two-thirds of violent crime was never reported. So we realised that we couldn't just arrest our way out of a difficult situation. We had to find other initiatives that would really tackle the kind of matters that underpinned the symptoms, which were violence and disorder. So we did that. We looked at the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. Now that is a fantastic database of a whole variety of factors ranging from crime to health, education, employment, mental health, the population in terms of the young and the elderly. So that gave us a very strong indication in terms of what were the underlying issues that was leading to such widespread social dysfunction is pretty much the only way to describe it. So there was higher than average rates of postnatal depression, smoking while pregnant, teenage pregnancy, asthma-related illnesses in babies and children. And then we, we began to paint a picture of connectedness in terms of those different issues that were affecting communities. And lo and behold, when we started the listening events, and more and more people attended. We we gathered all of the information, all of the feedback, and in collaboration with the residents, worked out what were the priorities. And those priorities matched what was in the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. So we were off to a flying start because we knew exactly the issues that needed to be tackled. And we had ready-made resources in the form of residents and communities who were desperately keen to get involved to start that transformation. And again, I just think I'd like to echo there around some of the analysis that you spoke about. 
I had a particularly supportive analyst within the police service, happy to go to other agencies and provide a similar sort of broad-based approach. One of the things around problem solving, and that always raises an issue because why should an area be seen as a problem particularly? But if you look at problem solving, part of it, it's based around the acronym around SARA, isn't it? So you've got your scanning and your analysis. Well, if your scanning isn't adequate, your analysis isn't adequate. It's the same principle about rubbish into computers, rubbish out. But it's just a case of... When you're able to look at things far more broadly than just me having town councillors that legitimately, in their eyes, standing up and shouting at me that Townstall was like Belfast in the 1980s. This is the South Hams. These are people getting local paper headlines for political purposes and demonising areas, hoping it would get them either access to funding or get them another headline or get them some link into the who's going to be the next MP, all of these things. And yet you've got a community there that were really proud of who they were, just echoing what Tony said earlier, proud of where they lived, proud of who they were, and were trying their best to actually act against a tide of what I have to say I think was political indifference. And it was that type of thing that got, I suppose me thinking there's got to be a better way of doing it than the way that we were originally doing all of this. And it's funny, those broader based analyses of an area, the one thing that struck me, and I still remember some 11 years later, is that it showed Townstall had the lowest ownership of cars in Devon and had virtually the worst bus service. So you've got an area up the top of the hill with no services that relies on public services in the sense of buses and actually had some of the worst services around. And it's mm -hmm. these things that started to emerge. And you think, why am I having fingers pointed at me as a police service? I can't solve that, but I can help and ensure you get my support to help you solve it. And mm -hmm. it's those listening events that started to show to all of the partners as well that we had, this wasn't a police-only issue because all the headlines were about crime and antisocial behaviour and drug dealing. Yeah. And the listening event identified lack of access to doctor services or GP services, lack of access to dentists and no coffee shop. We've just had a big Sainsbury's built, they said, without a coffee shop, virtually the only one in the country. And these things took priority. ASB and drugs came fifth and seventh, I think, on the list initially. Yes, there are issues, but actually when you're looking at the quality of life and what makes people feel better, feel healthier and have an opportunity to interact and connect with each other, it wasn't around some of the policing. They were part of it, but having the mm -hmm. residents already, I suppose, identifying this and the work done by Hazel as well in the background to ensure the major partners were there and it wasn't seen as just a police event, started to rationalise and I think contextualise ways mm -hmm. forward that didn't involve just shouting at the police to throw a resource at it and arrest more people. I remember when I visited Cornwall for the first time, and I met the Sergeant Mark, who was heading up Operation Goodnight. And that, for me, was a real tangible example of how we could deploy the same kind of principles back up in Scotland. And Operation Goodnight came about as a result of underage drinking. I don't know if you remember this, Paul. Yes, um, yes, I do. Yeah. And it was one night, and Mark himself told me the story of how he was cornered by members of the community. And he had a baton, he had a taser, and he thought, what can I do? So the only thing that he thought that he could do was to apologise. And he very instinctively said, look, I'm sorry, we got it wrong, how can we fix it? And from that moment on, 
they started working together. And if I remember correctly, that led to joint patrols between police and paramedics and residents. And it was a, a self-imposed curfew. Yeah, the voluntary with, curfew. Yeah. With the permission and agreement of the parents. So rather than, there was a famous curfew in Scotland, a place called Hamilton many years ago, that was found to breach human rights. But the initiative in Cornwall was completely different because it was from the bottom up. It was from community-led. It was the community giving the agencies permission to come into the place where they live, the place where they are proud to live, and to start doing something different. And that was a catalyst for change. And was it Red Ruth, I think, was the community? Do you know, I can't remember exactly. Uh, I can't remember. Do you know, I'd, I'd bow to your greater knowledge there. So uh, uh, if it wasn't Red Ruth, we're now appointing Red Ruth uh, as the centre yes, of offering. they can take the credit. Yes. But that then got us thinking up here. And I know I've, I've told this story many a time, Paul, and you'll have heard it umpteen occasions. But one of our first listening events, the chap who came forward with the idea of an archery club. And when we first heard this story, we thought, right, here we are, the violence reduction unit trying to take weapons off the streets. And this guy is <laughs> suggesting that we hand out bows and arrows. But the whole idea was to bring young people and elderly people together into the one location to learn about the various aspects of a bow and arrow under the guise of an archery club. So the archery club was really just the means of bringing all of these different elements together. And that archery club still exists to this very day and has been replicated across the country. But it was such a novel idea that caught the imagination of so many different people that led to the success of that particular initiative to the extent where word got back to Prince Charles, of all people, whose notional bodyguards in Scotland are the Royal Scots archers. So he got word of this. And what I was told is that he decided he wanted to see this for himself, which he did. He came and he participated in an archery lesson with the folk who started this up in the first place. So, you know, it was just phenomenal. And what's happened since then, that's gone back to between 2010 to 2012, that that sustainable legacy that I was talking about has happened. Because many of the people who volunteer to get involved, having on to greater things, going to college, new employment, they just realised that they could fulfil their aspirations. But even bigger than that, the local authority decided that they wanted to apply the same kind of ethos and rebadged their community development team as Vibrant Communities, which has co-production and assets-based approaches at the heart of everything that they do. And that's had many other spin-offs. Where my office is, is on Kilmarnock Railway Station, and it's part of the Kilmarnock Railway Station Heritage Trust, which is a community enterprise hub, which is continuing that legacy of, of working with people in communities. So, you know, it's just an incredible journey. Yeah, and I think this issue around legacy that you talk about is probably one of the major, I was going to say successes, but I know Hazel will talk as well about some of the difficulties and some of what she would term as massive failures and learning issues around all of this as well. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, a rocky path to play because, you know, although you can transpose principles and can try that, 
you can't transpose the same ideas, you know, whereas you talk about the archery club and how that ended up as the catalyst for what people wanted to do. Each area and people need to identify the things that matter to them, don't they? And you've got your TR14ers and your dance issues. You've got people who decided at Townstall the focal point was their local community playground and let's make that something. Each area decides on what it wants to do, but underlying all of that is an ethos around improving people's confidence and ability to be able to make sure they see their voice being heard. And I think for me as a police service anyway, the opportunity with C2 was that people didn't just hear the words about it, but actually got to see that they were being considered as equal partners, that they were being asked to be part of the solution, not just to identify things. And you mentioned really early on, actually, Tony, that you ended up talking about projects and you talked about funding. And we all know, doesn't it? Projects have as much to do with the aims and the objectives of the organisation who facilitate and fund them as they ever do with local needs. Whereas this is all about investing time, effort and energy in ensuring those local needs are identified. And Mm -hmm. for me, that is the essence of the consent that communities give to policing and the legitimacy policing has to represent that and to use its powers where it's necessary. I do agree with that. But unfortunately, we end up with a home office that is obsessed around police officers having to use powers. And what we're talking about here is actually giving up certain power, giving up certain influence. That is the norm within our sort of hierarchical organisations and saying, you as a community will know best. We will do what we can to fit that if we need to use our powers as part of that, as you had to do with some of the issues going on there. And as I had to do with certain raids on certain premises, yeah, there's an element of trust in you. But once you get that trust... I think you start to see communities taking over. And for me, I suppose if I were to look at, and I like that legacy thing that you spoke about, about people still going on, is that not only did they start out with what I saw was political indifference and an element of obstruction, and I know there's an element of controversy there as well from me, but you now have 10 years on people involved within Townstall who are part of Dartmouth's independent group who have had, I believe, 11 or 12 councillors now from this group get onto the council and start to influence things along similar lines as the community partnership who have been galvanised by this whole approach. Now, that sounds really easy because I know a lot of work has gone on behind the scenes and it's been local people supported by people from within University of Exeter. So I know there's a lot of work there. But the persistence, the identification of individuals locally, the ones who want to see change, the ones who can be supported and the ones who see change as a result of their own identification of issues and efforts, it builds that long lasting resilience that Tony spoke about. That far outweighs anything that was introduced in 2008 telling me and many of my colleagues how to deliver neighbourhood policing. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many facets to this approach. I suppose you could label them as psychological and philosophical because the dynamic that are created in this approach in terms of bringing people together and, you know, bouncing ideas off each other and just, as you say, as a service provider, just giving up that little bit of power and taking a risk now and again to say, we're just going to get right behind you. If you need any advice, help, assistance, feel free to ask. Now, there's a key element to policing effectively and for me that is all about trust unless you have the trust of a community and the appropriate relationships you won't get anywhere 
what I did discover, because bearing in mind, when I was in the VRU, our primary purpose was to reduce and hopefully eradicate violent crime and disorder. But it's impossible to do that without residents in the community. We discovered that the level of community intelligence went through the roof because people were coming forward because they were meeting people like Paul Morgan and Tony Bowen and others. They were developing a relationship which was based on trust and respect. And that trust and respect went both ways. So, you know, many people who had never engaged with the police and other agencies were in a, a position where, for the first time, they felt that they could speak quite openly and freely and become more of a participant rather than just being a passive resident. And that was quite an impact, I thought. And I would echo again. All I've done is echo you. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you're obviously leading the way. You're ploughing that furrow here, Tony, and I'm just it's following just, It's just because I got in first, Paul. <laughs> but I think the issue around there, around the community intelligence, because, yes, there were issues. Like I said, I didn't see anything untoward in the crime figures that we had as the police service, but the disquiet on the estate was very well known with regards to certain drugs activity. Uh, but as a result of some intelligence, I was able to execute several warrants within the first two to three months of us formalising yeah. after the listening event. And you attribute so much of that to not just snippets of info, but we're getting information that's being backed up that elevates it in the sense of what we can accept and base a warrant upon. And we were able to execute things that we would really have not done so beforehand based on it was just there wasn't quite enough there. We also, and this is not just about the community in the sense of those living there, we also had the headmaster of the local school, the secondary school, which had been losing individuals and its reputation suffering a little bit. Coming on board, because of the comments around drugs in school, actually agreeing for me to take in passive drugs dogs into the school in order to show his support, whereas headmasters are running, uh, or head teachers are running scared of this issue around performance and league tables and what what's this going to look like in the local press. It was, mm-hmm. we, I want to address it. I trust you to handle this properly. And we did handle it. We got a lot of publicity. We got a mm-hmm. lot of coverage on the TV as well through the regional TV. But it was for positive reasons, despite some disquiet. Yeah. We're working together on this and we'll eradicate uh, it together. Yeah, we were the same. We had conducted a wee survey at the start of the work that we conducted. And one of the interesting responses we got was that the only time residents saw the police is when the police come in team-handed to arrest somebody. Yeah. Now, my view has always been that the best measure of policing is the absence of police because it shows that a community can pretty much police itself. However, there was a developing trend of violence and disorder indoors, which Many people said it was driven by the smoking ban in pubs in Scotland. So more people were taking alcohol in behind closed doors. So the challenge was how on earth do you police that type of thing indoors? And we discovered that through the various listening events that we were having. And the listening events then developed into quite a significant event. And each event became themed So, for example, around November time and Remembrance Day, we asked local families to bring any memorabilia, photographs of their communities way back in the 50s and 60s. And it then 
led to, there was a, an old folks home in the middle of the community, which was fairly isolated. So they got involved and it brought back memories for them and made new connections. And suddenly there was a kind of vibrant atmosphere, which was supported by feedback events where we had gathered all of the information and we said, this is what you've told us, where are the priorities? And not only what are the priorities, but how do you want to fix them? What do you suggest? So residents came up with the homework club, the breakfast club, the old men's club, then became a music club, which is now a choir. Young mums who were feeling a bit depressed with life get access to free health and beauty care from the local college who used these sessions to test their students' skills. And so all of these initiatives happened very, very quickly with no money. There was no requirement for any funding, you know, so that's how the legacy started. Yeah, and I think the importance for me there is that right from the outset, what started as for me as, as a police service having fingers pointed at me as what are you going to do about that estate up the road into one of what does the estate decide it's going to do in order to address some of its issues, challenging some of those local political things, fine. But I think the importantest issue for me was the police service moved from being chair of a meeting and controlling an agenda to being an agenda item. And it, you saw this broadening of issues based on the estate. And I mean, 10 years on, you have every Friday in Townstall in Dartmouth, they have their Friday hub meeting the citizens advice the help with benefits the advice around uh, cold weather payments the issues around people who are homeless those dental checkups oral checkups the, the things going on now mm. generated by people within their own community supported by a very broad range of partners now who are brave enough to have stuck along with it all the way through it, it certainly isn't just about policing as it wasn't at the beginning but i'd agree mm. with you wholeheartedly about the legacy that's available through investing the time, efforts and energies to do something like this properly rather than ensuring that we just do it because we have to tick a box and return it to the home office from a policing point of view. Because yeah. all of the things you've mentioned generate that trust and that trust is at the heart of policing. And if we lose that yeah. trust, then we've lost everything. We just become an enforcement yeah. force and we just get bust in or parachuted in and yeah. we do our business and withdraw well yeah. that to me is not policing in britain and it's funny because when we talk about again very quickly just about that legacy thing i moved on from there so i was no longer the sector inspector i moved into developing the neighborhood policing policy for devon and cornwall police the strategy not on my own you rely on lots of other people but the role was one of coordinating and trying to bring that together well when we did start to lose police officer posts and we had to reassess how we deliver local policing then I was charged with trying to make sure we captured the essence of what we thought policing was in a number of roles. And we developed uh, only a handwrite, about 10, 12 roles as a pilot. But those roles, in their training, we delivered three days worth of the C2 program through Hazel and through Robin and Katrina and such like. So they understood that there are ways in which you can think and develop approaches that don't rely on hundreds of uniforms on a the street they rely on an approach and a trust and not losing that trust and not losing sight of that consent and legitimacy that policing needs so the visibility issue forced our force to think differently and gave me at least an opportunity to get 
certain aspects of the C2 approach embedded into our problem solving approach in force. And, you know, it's so there are legacies here that come from the effectiveness of what we saw in the first yeah. place. Yeah, where I'm based now, if I could just mention a couple of initiatives, my office is on the platform number one, Kilmarnock Railway Station. And the reason I chose this location is because it's part of a community enterprise hub that's been set up by a couple of people, Alan Brown and Laura Yetton. And what they have done is create an assets-based ethos around volunteering. So they have created a vegan deli, an active travel hub, an addiction recovery service. And it's almost like a conveyor belt where you come in the front door and by the time you've reached the exit door, you're feeling a bit better with life. So, you know, and in the basement, they're developing a freedom bakery where it's all about employability, but wraparound services like counselling, mental health and wellbeing services, all in this one location. And it's having quite a transformational effect on other parts of Kilmarnock. So, for example, Celebrate Kilmarnock has evolved from the work in Northwest Kilmarnock, and that's all about using assets-based approaches to regenerate Kilmarnock Town Centre. So that legacy has been absolutely remarkable. And 10 years down the line, we're still talking about it. We're still putting it into practice. So it's just a remarkable experience. Yeah, and that decade, again, is something that, from what started with my involvement with C2 and Hazel at Townstall, developed into that, how do we try and get some of these principles embedded into our approach to policing? With, I think, more than marginal success with, with regards to that one. But the important aspect is, like I just said, there's still, in Townstall in Dartmouth on a Friday, a hub approach that is generating so much local comment, activity, partnerships, and it's moved into the political sphere. And I mean political with a small p there, in the sense of an independent group who have as their focus improving Dartmouth, Townstall and the surrounding areas, not fighting petty battles over funding in a town council chamber. And to me, that's probably one of the greatest legacies of seeing the partnership build up in Townstall and challenge mm. some of the hegemony of those voices that have been around for decades just pointing yeah. fingers at the state. 